Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, it's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy. I'm your host. Thanks a lot for joining us today. If you'd like to support Basic Folk, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can follow us on social media. We're at Basic Folk Pod. You can go to our website, basicfolk.com, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Or you can make a contribution to Basic Folk by going to basicfolk.com slash donate make a small financial contribution to help offset the costs it takes to produce Basic Folk. And thank you if you're listening and you are a contributor, making it happen. Okay, today we are talking to Eliza Gilkison, my new BFF. Eliza is a middle child, a constant reinventor of herself, and a surprise teacher of songwriting. Her father, the acclaimed folk singer-songwriter Terry Gilkison, moved his family to California in the late 1940s to pursue a career in folk music. He found success with his group The Easy Riders and as a staff songwriter for Disney. He wrote songs for animated films and most famously Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book, which earned him an Oscar nomination. Terry greatly influenced Eliza's style with a love of melody, natural talent, and visceral writing. Young Eliza spent time in the southwestern United States soaking in the sounds of Western folk. That sound encompasses her new album, Songs from the River Wind, which is out January 14, 2022. She spent many years going back and forth from New Mexico to California to Austin, Texas, and back to New Mexico again. The pandemic and settling into her third act put a lot of things into perspective, including officially moving 100% back to her beloved Taos, New Mexico. The new album is not political, which is unusual for Eliza, who's been known to write pointed political scorchers on her records. Lots of these songs and sounds are encompassing a time gone by, featuring moments of joy and beauty. The sounds on the album completely encapsulate her dad's trademark style, led by Taos band The Rifters, who accompany Eliza this time around. Eliza's embarking on another new reinvention of herself, which she has been known to do over the course of her amazing life. Most famously, at 50 years old, around the year 2000, Gilkison reclaimed the identity of folk singer and released her career-affirming and changing album, Hard Times in Babylon. That record unlocked her writing and set her on a path of authentic creation in her music, and she has not looked back. Here's to constant reinvention. Let's take a listen to a song from Eliza's new album. At the foot of the mountain is the song, and then we'll get to our conversation with Eliza Gilkison on Basic Folk. At the 
Isaac Gilkison, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me, of course. <laughs> um, I have some questions about your dad, like his career. And I just like got so into it when looking up all of the information about you and your new album. Also, like looking back, there were a couple of things about your dad that like definitely piqued my interest. So it's I just want you to know it's not gonna be the whole interview, but I'm like definitely curious about some things. I'm always happy to talk about my dad. He was so cool and uh, and I miss him so much and and so um, you know big part of my life. Oh awesome. Okay. So I don't know if you know very much about this history. So um, Terry Gilkison was an important folk singer and songwriter and like kind of a weird time to be a folk singer. So he moved to L.A. in the late 40s to pursue a career as a folk singer. His group, the Easy Riders, had some big hits and a distinct sound that you actually worked to capture on your new album, kind of like a folk western sound. And I read that their career included a span of time from like 1956 to 1959 called the missing years of folk music. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And I've heard it referenced before. um, Only in hindsight did this ever come come to the front. But there was this period where it, it was a transition period, I think. And and everything, there's nothing. There's sort of a, a dearth of music from that time period. That um, that and and my dad was sort of this bridge, I think, between the old style folk music and then what and what like the Woody Guthrie and yeah. the Weavers, yeah, exactly. to the Kingston Trio, right? A- exactly. So you're exactly right. And age wise, that was sort of where he fit in as well. He was older than the Kingston Trio guys and younger than the Guthrie uh, gang. So. He he was and younger than Pete and uh, Seeger and all that. So although he did do some recordings with them, but he was a young uh, up and coming guy at that time. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's um, the McCarthyism comes into this because uh, a lot of folk artists are being blacklisted and record labels were nervous. So in these like lost missing years, the Easy Riders I read were like virtually the only folk band out there with a major recording contract, which is pretty wild. Well, you know, and my dad was later on, he wasn't kind of embarrassed about that because they were not political. They didn't, 
he didn't uh, stand up for the party, you know. He, he actually wasn't a socialist. He was not a member of the Socialist Party or anything. So he, he, you know, he, he had three kids in the 50s, and he had a family, and he, was, he wanted to write music that was mainstream, that used some folk elements that he had certainly grown up with and that he had started his style with. But he, was pretty, he played it pretty safe through that era. Mm. And that is why he was visible, because you look at Burl Ives and Pete and a lot of the other and a lot of the other artists in that little window, they, they all got uh, blacklisted. So um, my mm. dad did not get blacklisted. He's one of the few that didn't uh, from that era, and that's largely because I think he 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 never did take a particular political stance. Mm. So interesting, and in that I just actually finished listening to your interview on Folk Pod, where you were talking about making sure that folk music doesn't like merge too much with Americana because folk music is like so political. Yeah. If you have any like thoughts about thinking about that and then thinking about like how your dad like kind of like didn't lean into the politics of folk music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that sense, he homogenized it. You know, he was part of the homogenization process. And I, I think for me, Coming up in the shadow of his, he almost, I think he, I think if he were here today, he would say that he felt shame about it, that he didn't because, um, you know, he, he saw his friends, you know, take a big risk and he, he didn't. And he said at the time, he really thought, you know, he, he needed to have income for his, cause he had a family and it was that mm. kind of choice. You know, you see people still making those choices now. Once, once you have a family, you start to, you know, dilute your commitments. And, and that mm-hmm. is what happens. Uh, I, I see, you see it again and again. Uh, and it's, it's an unhappy uh, thing that does happen. But anyway, in terms of how I feel now, I, I w- certainly f- felt that way when I start, started being more political with my music was like, okay, am I going to, am I going to just X myself out of a job here? You know? And I think um, that in the, in the beginning of my being political, which was more in the, around year 2004 or so, or, or, and around um, invasion of, of, of Iraq, I, I did wonder about it. Am I just screwing myself, you know, because at that mm-hmm. time you really got a lot of flack for it. And, and this pre-Dixie Chicks, you know, when I was writing some the, uh, political music and Highway 9 and stuff, I worried about it and I, and I got a lot of hate mail. And I remember just thinking, wow, you know, this really feels awful. I like people to like me, you know, I don't want to have hate, mm. hate bombarding me and stuff. And it's really hard to, to take it. But I do think that uh, the folk music genre is, is a really almost sanctified place to put political music. And, and that's mm. why I don't want to see it uh, be merged into Americana. And I really hope that the genre can stay separate. It's it's a important thing to me um, because I think in country music or Americana music, which is wonderful rural rooted music and and very authentic, but certainly has a lot of right wing politics. So I I just would hate to see them merge to the point where where there was a backlash of, uh, against um, politics in, in music when they sort of sanctioned little corner of music. I, I, I want it to stay pure. <laughs> hmm. um, so your dad, after he uh, left Easy Riders in 1960, he started working at Disney, and you were 10 years old when he started working there. He actually ended up being nominated for an Oscar for The Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book in 1967. 
Um, so back then, Disney had only been around for kind of like 40-ish years. But like right around that time that he started working there, they started putting movies out like The Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, which like even like writing those film titles out and like writing this question, my heart was just like soaring with joy thinking about those movies. Mm -hmm. But what do you recall about your dad working at Disney in terms of you and your siblings and maybe your friends felt about Disney and Disney movies? Well, of course, we were very proud of him. But even back then, because I was I was in my uh, teens by then, um, I started to see that um, the, Disney invited him to be a staff writer, and that was a big that was it would have been a and, and it's where my dad really showed some some courage because he got offered a salaried position at Disney and he turned it down because he because w- with the salary pro- uh, position you would trade your publishing, and my dad was one of the first. Uh, songwriters that I know of who actually created his own publishing company because he oh, wow. began to see that um, these guys were, if you went on a salary with them, they got the publishing. They got the songwriter publishing. So um, it was th- that was part of being a staff writer. And so they invited my dad to go on and be a staff writer. And I remember this even back then that he he wouldn't do it because he wanted to own his publishing. And that's, you know, that was a long time ago. And uh, nowadays, you know, every everybody owns their, at least at least a songwriter portion of their publishing. But back then, you know, you you gave the store away if if for for a, a weekly salary. So that's what I remember from then was that angst, you know, that he was going through. But I also remember him writing the songs for the Jungle Book. because He had a home office. He also had an office in Hollywood, but he did a lot of his writing at home. So I remember his sort of cigarette burned desk, you know, where he really, you know, would hunker down there at his desk and and uh, and write. And, and he, so it was right next to, you know, just across the hall from my from my bedroom. So I remember very well him writing the the songs for um, for the Jungle Book and uh, for the Aristocats and others because he was in there singing them, you know. <laughs> That's great. Um, also, I I feel like. I've asked questions like that of artists before of like, oh, your parent had a really cool job. Tell me how cool it was. And then their answer is like, wasn't that cool? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I knew my dad was cool because everybody around (laughs) me, their parents were so straight next to my dad. I mean, and we had people coming in and out of our house that were really, you know, they were really excellent, excellent musicians. And they lived in another world on another plane. Mm. They were so cool. I mean, I, I very early on wanted in on that life. I, I could see nice. it was outside the box. And, and so I thought my dad was amazingly cool, but he was also an artist and artists are complex and, you know, troubled and, you know, uh, sensitive and, you know, there's all those kinds of things that goes with being an artist. So I, in hindsight, I would say, he was just a great dad, but he had his, mm. his own, he had, you know, his own big problems. And I certainly had to work through those myself in later years. Have you ever gotten a chance to talk to Amy Helm? No. Oh, Levon Helm's daughter. No. But I had I, her on the podcast a while ago. Oh, man. Yeah. Yes. It'd be a good conversation between we, the two of you. I, I have talked with Roseanne Cash because there, you know, there's there's some big similarities there, and and, uh, and Johnny Cash recorded one of my dad's songs, and uh, so and had I think there was a lot of mutual respect there. But yes, I mean, you're talking about those guys were like kids in the candy shop, you know, they, they and they, they were they didn't have you know AA and 
therapy and, you know, tools t- to deal with their, their own dysfunctional childhood. Mm. So they, they were a mess, you know, those guys, but um, yeah. boy, were they charismatic. You were being interviewed by E-Town a few years ago, and you made the comment, well, I'm the middle child, so I'm always trying to please everyone. <laughs> uh, you also talked about being a shy and invisible little kid. Um, can you go into like the dynamic of your family and how you became the people pleaser and like what's basically been your experiencing experience with like cutting that crap? Wow. Well, I don't think anybody's ever really asked me that. Um, <laughs> I, I still think I have that that whole thing of wanting people to love me and like me and and say and thumbs up all the time. You know, I hate it when <laughs> I, I want everybody to like me. You know, that is a problem. But I have I have I have certainly tempered that with an understanding that that's not going to happen and that I, I don't want to change my behavior or my desires based on that. I just can't. I'm too old for that, for one thing. So that has really shifted. But being the middle child, I've ha- I have had to work really, really hard to, to in, in a way, reinvent myself because I was shy and I was very insecure. And I think music was the vehicle through which I could really become my true self. And I, I think a lot of artists feel that way, that, that they found themselves with their art and, and I found a way to express myself and starting out as a very angst-ridden teenager, but later on, you know, just starting to really process all the, the, the things in my past that had, that were harming me and, and, and trying to change that. And that came out in the music. And I, I think if you put my, all my records stem to stern, you know, uh, in a row, you would see this entire evolution of a person coming into themselves. I, I mean, I think it's, you know, reaching the point where I stopped focusing on myself and became political because I, I realized it was more than just about me and then mm. political music. And then also going into the sorrow of, of being an activist in music because you're always every day, you know, you're, you're feeling the grief over the environmental losses and the, and the social injustice losses. And you, because you're an artist, everything hurts, you know? And so I think it has been a real struggle to find my joy um, in, in the face of everything that I see going on and staying open to feeling everything so that I can write and mm. keep my authentic voice, but also, um, you know, having a hard time wanting to get up in the morning <laughs> because you feel everything. Yeah. So, um, but I'm finding so much joy. And I think the new record really shows that in a way that there is a there is a way still to to straddle all these worlds and bring them all, all these disparate parts of myself mm. together. And I think that's happening more and more. And I think it shows in the music that I'm writing. I have a question about your joy a little later on in the interview. So <laughs> something to look forward to, but I did want to talk um, about Lisa, mm-hmm. um, who used to be you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time where you did like outwardly reinvent yourself. Um, you went by Lisa as a kid. And then when you were in your thirties, you started asking people to call you Eliza um, which is kind of cool to think about if you are a shy little kid to abandon your name and go to your actual name, which is actually Eliza, your real name. Lisa was a nickname. It could actually give you the courage to like be a different kind of person. But what kind of changes did you experience then? And then how do you think of Lisa now? Oh, God. Um, it was really hard to, to, 
to claim my given name. I, I, it was really hard and I put it off for years because I just, I didn't know if I could, if I had it in me to step into it. Eliza, you, you know, had, I don't know, it was like, it was a reinvention. And, and, and Eliza was such a powerful name to me. It was Lisa seemed like, you know, this obliging, you know, little girl. And so um, it took me about a year and I had to really commit to it because uh, everybody, everybody wants to hold you to what you were. And I think anybody who wants to go through a metamorphosis and finds himself in a metamorphosis, everybody around them wants to hold them in position where they were. And mm. so, and you know, uh, your family, they're the worst, you know, even though they gave me the real name, Liza, you know, they wanted to call me Lisa, but, but I, I, and I just, I, I realized I'm going to have to commit myself to this a hundred percent and I'm going to have to keep correcting people and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep claiming it and, and, uh, until it shifts. And, and that's what I did, but it took a solid year of just work. And then even mm. my dad, you know, eventually they started to call me, uh, well, they all call me Liza. Nobody says Eliza, but Liza is Good as I could yeah, yeah. And it, it felt great to do it, but it took a while. The Z is a very powerful letter. It's a, it's a different kind of person, Eliza. They <laughs> say, yeah, yeah. Your new album is a love letter to the Old West, and then this is the press release quote. It's a compo- It's composed of snapshots of her years wandering the West as a musical minstrel searching for her heart's home. You have since found yourself in Taos, New Mexico, um, or just outside of Taos. Right. Yes. Um, which you have been going back and forth with New Mexico since it seems like 1969, moving to L.A., moving to Austin, going back and forth between there and New Mexico. What first brought you to New Mexico and how have you witnessed your relationship to the place over time? And how does it feel now that you've like finalized your stay? Well, we first started coming here when I was in the 50s and we came to Santa Fe because my dad had family here. It's once again how my dad, you know, introduced me to things that became so meaningful in my life. But he had family here. And so we started coming in the summers and I just, I, I, I just loved Santa Fe. I mean, it was so incredible in the fifties. It was so mysterious. It was all dirt roads and little. There was a couple little music venues where real folk singers played music, and there itinerant people like Ramblin' Jack and and uh, you know, real bona fide folk singers in these little clubs and and just the mysteriousness of the native people uh, and the, really the Hispanic and and uh, native cultures were were in the majority and that white people were in the minority there. They still are. And it's, it's a, so you really have a different place in the scheme of things when you're in the minority. And it was good for me and good for all of us in my family. But I just remember the, the weather, you know, and if I could turn my computer around and show you the color of the sky, (laughs) you know, it's just, it, it, it really embedded itself in me. And, and, uh, uh, it was a very difficult, uh, so I stayed and then I, I, I would leave and, and try to insert myself into the music industry and I'd always come back. I just, I, d- I had a very hard time leaving New Mexico. Uh, I had kids, my kids here, a very young mother. 
So I, I got attached, and um, but it was not a place to have a career. I mean, the, I played uh, honky tonks. I um, always did original music, but I tailor made it for, you know, country dancing and bar music. I, I played um, all the, the great honky tonks in northern New Mexico. I, I cut my teeth in all of them. And I uh, learned to play with the band and tried to make little records here. But I, at a certain point, I realized I was going to have to go if I, if I wanted to um, really try my hand at something more than just a regional mm -hmm. career. So um, various excursions to California where I, I really didn't, I didn't flourish. And finally ended up in Austin where I was really able to sink down some roots and, and start to create a career for myself. But then, you know, I always loved New Mexico, and every time I'd come back here, I think I, I, I want to be here. I want to be here, but mm. I, but I can't. And so I was kind of a fish out of water in Texas. I, I as much as I have so many friends there, and my kids are there, and I, and the music scene is so great there. But um, I never, I wasn't an authentic Texan musician. I was, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I think I think they knew that, and I knew it. And, um, so I, I, as much, I was a, a transplant and, and, uh, so I, you know, I could sit on the sidelines and enjoy towns and Lucinda and they're, uh, you know, certainly Lucinda's a friend, but, um, but I never, and Nancy Griffith, same thing. It was like, there they are. I'll never be that. I'll, but I, mm. when I come to New Mexico, I think, you know, I, I am, this is, this is really me. And, and musically, this is me too. Mm. You moved to Austin in the late 90s, uh, and that's when you finally reclaim the identity of folk singer. Because trusted advisors told you not to pursue being a folk singer, you had the acoustic guitar basically put away under your bed for many years. <laughs> but right. once you did, you, you brought out the guitar, and you were like, I'm going to be a folk singer. The response was so immediate, you said people feel it when somebody is themselves. Why were people telling you not to get into folk music? And also, can you talk about your connection to music before and after that discovery of your true folk self? Yeah, it was in the in the '90s, really, when it's sort of new new wave and punk and all these th things were happening. And I, I I was married to my manager, and he was with a company that offered to really try and make me have a pop thing happen. And it was like to put that, get tough, you know, um, get yourself a mullet, <laughs> put on no. these shoulder pads and, you know, one, onesies with giant shoulder pads. And, and maybe a sword. Yeah, <laughs> certainly some rhinestones. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, write this kind of pop rock stuff. And I did. I did it. And, uh, and, and it was really my own choice to try that I love different genres and it was uh, fun and I and I was sort of embarrassed by my folkiness I was so, so rural and um, and so it was kind of fun to just put it all away and plug into an amp and and mm -hmm. get with a really hot band and 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 write these sort of pop songs but if you strip those songs down it was just me sitting there with an acoustic guitar you know in my closet of a, of a office and so any of those songs, if you if you took away the production, they would probably still be folk songs. But it was a real pursuit of inanity, as far as I can tell. It was really just the, the more I got into it, the further I got away from myself, the more mistakes I made and the more of a slump I, I was in. And 
it was a, a really big thing for me to strip away the synthesizers and pick up the acoustic guitar. It was a big thing to me. And to come mm. back to Austin and just go, I'm going to strip it down. I got to, I got to find this at that. By that time I was almost 50 years old. I mean, I realized if I don't, if I don't find this thing and get it down to the essence now, then I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have some big regrets. So mm. it was really important to me to start touring, to start everything over. It was really hard. It was humiliating. I had to open for, for acts that were just like so um, just bad. I mean, I, I, had, I had to go out there and, and for $50 open for people just to reinvent myself and, and, and go out there with a guitar and start it over again. And, but, but I, I got immediate reaction to it. So that was a good sign. That's great. So you have been running writing workshops and teaching um, songwriting where you create a non-judgmental safe environment to facilitate exploring songwriting and pushing through blocks and self-doubts. Um, and you say that you love it more than you could have have ever imagined. And I've heard you talk about it and say, you know, everyone has a poet inside of them and we need people to be in touch with that side of themselves. Why do you say that? Because I think we live in a time where everything is inviting us to shut down and, um, and, and offering us plenty of good reason to shut down. It's a very painful, frightening time in, in the history of humankind. And, is so dangerous and it's so sad, you know. I, I mean, so many things are happening with species extinction and the suffering of, of creatures and, and loss of habitat in the natural world and these things that are so painful, um, people suffering on such a massive global scale, um, that it's very tempting to, to shut down. And I think if we shut down, then we will stop caring. And if we stop caring, then we really are lost. So... This is really my philosophy that we should all, if we can, do whatever we can to not shut down. And and um, being creative is a really great way to um, stay sentient. And so I, I think of it as a, as a service, you know, to work with other artists to keep them. And I think of er that everyone does have that side of themselves. And some people don't really want to indulge in it, but, and some people find it easier and some people find it harder to mm -hmm. access it. But what I have found again and again, I have people, students who are, you know, they, they know three chords and they don't and they think they can't sing. But I, I feel like I've seen it again and again that within that, whatever their limitations are, which I call your style, <laughs> Um, <laughs> then, I, then <laughs> there's something in there. Everybody's got something it's special and they've had everybody has their own unique experiences and, and my job is to help them find out and, and to reward them to reward them for making the effort to go in there and figure out who they are and how to express themselves and to stay sending to and to provide an environment and, and keep accumulating this these students that then keep in touch and so we have a network of people and so they have their own monthly song pull and where they get in together and they and they when John Gork and I aren't even there. And so I did what I want to do is to is to nurture um, sentience because I think mm. um, I and I do this. It's selfish because I am so 
worried about everybody shutting down <laughs> and I don't want to shut down. So uh, yeah. this is how this is how we keep from doing that. I really want to hear about your friendship with John Gorka cuz it seems pretty special and you know he's he's such a wonderful affable human being and I feel like the two of you together it's like a pretty dynamic duo. Yeah, we we have such a great friendship and we we've weathered a lot of storms, you know, in our friendship and and lived to tell the tale and so, you know, I, I think John and I really work great together because he, in our workshops, he, he's all feel, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't analyze anything. He's, everything he, that comes out of John is so decent and thoughtful and um, well articulated. If you give him a moment mm-hmm. to, to get the words, this thing will come out that so beautifully articulates something that, you know, really unique and which we see again and again in his music and He's just an exceptional human being, and to work with him in the workshops has been uh, just an honor and, and really has caused us to become quite close because we work really well together. Hmm. How many songs has he written about your dogs? <laughs> I think just the one. Just one. Just yeah. the one. And that All came right. in a workshop. You know, that was just like, <laughs> it was an exercise, I think. It was about, you know, write a song about, you know, your dog and... and so I think that was it because we do these prompts, you know, in the in the workshop. So, and and usually the instructors don't because we're like so we're just our we're cross eyed. You know, we get an hour mm-hmm. to take a break. You know, I just go lie down or something, and, and John's over there writing a song. Like he takes one of our prompts and goes and writes. It's so great. He he, he has no errors about him at all. He makes everybody feel like we're all on an equal. Um, playing field and someone as you know talented and and lovable and um, and venerable as as John, um, it's really special to feel like you know that you're just his friend. Yeah, mm. it seems like a really fun friendship once you get through the whatever hard stuff that's happened. <laughs> um, your husband Robert Jensen. Mm-hmm. Activist, author, former professor of journalism at the University of Texas, seems like a true badass. What is this book called? Radical Feminism for Men. Yeah, man. Yeah, he seems like a trip man. Like, he- <laughs> wow. Okay, you credit him with bringing politics into your life in a radical way and into your music, and you have written some great political songs. Not on this album, but what? If you don't mind talking about this a little bit, what does politics look like at home for you? And also, like, how have age and wisdom come into play when processing the awfulness of it all? Hmm. Yeah. Well, having Robert around is like, it's like having the... um the oracle, you know, sitting on the, <laughs> at the mountaintop, you know, because he has developed such a very sophisticated, articulated political um, analysis. And so, uh, and he also has a, a background in history and media law and ethics. And, uh, you know, you, you add all these things in there, the ethical aspect of it and, uh, and his years of teaching and all those things. So he's a font of information and and he also goes and pries into the you know what's behind him, all the major systems of power and the hierarchies of power. He's he's really developed a very very sophisticated analysis. So um, he 
the question for me always is how much can I take, you know, because it's, it's dire, you know, what Robert knows is dire. And, you know, he's working now in the, in, with the Land Institute in, in uh, Kansas and who are developing these perennial grains and, you know, is trying to find something that sinks a deep enough taproot that doesn't, you know, that you don't have to till the soil so we won't lose the topsoil. And, and we'll, you know, so in the drought conditions where people, because mm. what's coming is so, so scary. And, you know, we're talking about massive starvation and massive uh, drought and, you know, so he, he doesn't paint a pretty picture. So it's it's very hard. And and then to kind of stay open to that and how, how I could I honestly have to admit there are times when I, I just say, Robert, I, I have to stop here because I can't, you know, I, I have to I, my heart has to adjust to this. Mm. It, it, it has been hard sometimes to be with someone who really ha- doesn't shy away from any truth. So um, at the same time, you know, writing my way through it has been my vehicle, you know, for for managing this information. So um, patriarchy, capitalism, you know, the environmental collapse, all these things, you know, how do I write my way through them? And that has been my almost my way of processing hard stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, and, and there are times I have to turn to him to get information, you know, but for the most part, I think now uh, we also have to uh, celebrate our differences. You know, um, I do have a, a little spark of something. I don't know what you call it. Maybe um, it's hope misplaced or whatever it is, um, or, uh, some sort of a, a spiritual overlay. I'm not completely, uh, I'm not a, a believer in nothing, you know, so I, I do have a, a sort of a a spiritual relationship with myself. And so mm-hmm. um, we don't always a- agree on everything. And that's fine. Actually, we have great discussions around that. It's not, mm. it's not a problem with us. We don't, I think if, if Robert lived with himself, he would not <laughs> like that. <laughs> I think he likes living with a dreamer. And I think I like living with a pragmatist. So it, it actually works really well. So mm. um, I don't think either one of us would want to be with someone who's like us. <laughs> so it has worked okay. Uh, so one question inspired by your album 2020 about the Woody Guthrie song that you recorded, Beach Haven, which addresses 1950s racial segregation. Woody sang the song and then in turn you sang the song. My enemy is my landlord who won't board them, black people, because he chose to live his sad life separately. The landlord being Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump. So I've been contemplating like social isolation a lot lately and reflecting on people who do choose to separate themselves from others in reality and wanted to know your perspective? Like, what has been your experience with those who segregate from reality? What do you see as the benefit from living a life among many different experiences? Um, It may seem like a very simple question, but, like, why do you think people want to isolate into groups? Well, I I, I mean, I think we're... We, we just want to affirm our own belief systems, you know, I mean, and, and this is a, a terrible danger. I, I mean, we don't want to have to do the work. I, I mean, if that's what you're talking about, I, I, I mean, this is I, I see it on the left as much as I do on the right. I, I, I just think I, I think we we'd rather just confirm our our our, our systems and, and we don't want to challenge them. I think the art of debate is gone. You know, it's. Who's the loudest? Who you know? 
who puts up the biggest drama, you know, is, gets the attention. We don't have rules for engagement. And it's a terrible situation. And I don't, I don't know what to say about it. You know, I, mm. I don't have an answer to it. I, I'm, I'm worried, you know. I, I'm, I, I find that I'm relating less and less to the left and, and as I am to the right, you know, I'm just saying we, we need to be finding very practical um, solutions of how to get along and hmm. that's not happening. So, I mean, look at me. I just moved from Austin to the mountains. There's only 5,000 people in the town I just moved <laughs> to, you know, I mean, there's a lot, I, I, that was an, that's, that was an escape. And as much as I'm going to try to stay in the, in the game, but there's also ageism, you know, when you're a certain age, you you really start to sense how irrelevant you are. And so I find myself preparing for that as well. I want to, mm. you know, I want to stay active and, and relevant, but I also realize that, I, that I've, there's an arc to your career. There's an arc to your powers even. Mm. And, and there are, if you're not being asked you know, then, then imposing yourself on everything doesn't work either. So um, there's a part of me that feels like, is this the time when I'm supposed to surrender, you know, and just let it all go? Or am I, you know, what's my job here? I don't know what my job is right now. Hmm. And I mean, do you, what do you, what do you, how do you see that? I think you said it really well in terms of like, people don't want their belief system to be challenged and that there are no, no rules of engagement. Okay, the new album, Songs from the River Wind, is out. If you're listening on January 13th, it's out tomorrow. If you're listening after that, it's out now. Um, It's about the joy of reconnecting to the land and memories from your childhood in the Southwest. And the sound of the album we mentioned earlier, Western Folk, not quite Spaghetti Western. And I went and confirmed that and listened to some Spaghetti Western music. And it's like a little bit more like comical and, you know, comic sans font. Um, But they kind of live in the same section of the library, I'd say. Uh Um, what is, it, what is it about that sound, the Western folk sound, that relates to the landscape of the Southwest and your childhood? I mean, other than that it was the kind of music that your dad played. Well, I mean, of course, it goes back to my dad, but I loved those old cowboy folk songs, you know. They just, oh, they ride in old paint and, and Streets of Laredo and all those. They were just wonderful songs with great melodies, and, and many of them came from Irish ballads. Those those um, mm. those old songs were just, you know, offshoots of Irish ballads and uh, melody, melodically. So, um, you know, I, I spent my childhood just uh, roaming around the West, uh, as I mentioned earlier. My dad took us to Wyoming every summer, and and then in New Mexico, we would do a car trip and go to New Mexico and then oh, up yeah. to Wyoming. And, and we camped all throughout this, the northern New Mexico and Wyoming and rode horses and, you know, ogled cowboys. And, you know, I, I <laughs> love the lifestyle. I, I, I loved it. I loved the music at the time, the Western music that was coming on the radio when we were traveling was just, you know, just such great music. And, mm. and e- even on the pop stations, they were playing, you know, Hank Williams and stuff. So, oh, that's um, cool. or Frank Ifield or something. It was, you know, really, it was great music. And, 
So I think just coming back here, I just, oh my God, it was like, can I give myself this? You know, can I just be here in the mountains again and, and have all these memories come back from my childhood and from my younger years when all my life was just come stretching out ahead of me and I was so... I just was so in love with, with the beauty that was around me every day. I never took it for granted. Just to come back and say, can I, can I just live here now? You know, can I, can I ha have this? And it, and then, and then to say, yes, you, you know, I can do that. And I, it felt so good. And I was just, every day I'd walk out, we have an orchard here and I'd walk out into our orchard and the pasture back there. And I, I just look at these mountains and I, I just go, I, I, it's so beautiful. And it's, I guess what had happened was, you know, I was been just grieving the, the loss of, of nature in the, and, uh, and the natural world, all the blows that we're taking. But I wasn't, I hadn't immersed my, I wasn't immersing myself in it. So it was just like this thing, this theory that, that we're losing everything and then I don't have anything here. So um, it, it was great to balance it, to go, I have beauty in my life. I'm every day I'm surrounded with beauty still, mm -hmm. even though everything is threatened, everything is painful. I, um, many of my goals I haven't reached there. You know, I, I'm a tentative financial thing, just like everybody. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but I have beauty around me every day. And that is really changing everything. And it's reminding me of of it's almost like retraining myself to find my joy and and mm. so so i think that this party what partly about what this record is about and, and some of these songs are quite a bit older and i was just like can i revisit these songs when i was so naive you know yeah. and um and but there's something about the joy of of that time period that i'm that i'm feeling again so it's mm. kind of fun to to unearth these songs yeah you were talking about how you tear up in the studio while you were recording, thinking about those moments from childhood of joy and beauty. So how did making this album impact your relationship with joy and beauty? There's the joy question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a big question because I think, I don't think I realized how far into grief I ha had traveled, you know. Um, I mean, I think I default. I'm a happy person. I, I don't think I have, I'm not a depressed person. So I, I, f I find my happiness you know, and lots of things, but I, I don't think I had that bubbling joy factor and I haven't had it for a long time. And, um, I've, I've been coping, you know, pretty well and I have incredible people around me, you know, people who love me and that I love. So it's not like I'm suffering or something. I'm super lucky, but that sense of the joy bubbling up, I, that I, I, and just feeling it every day and just waking up and going, my mm. God, I really am happy. And, that I hadn't had, I haven't had that in a really long time. I, I didn't mm. know I didn't have it until I started having it again. <laughs> so, you know, I, I know it has to do, everything to do with moving back here. It has everything to do with that. You've paid tribute to your dad on your albums before, and there are several tributes to him on the new album, and also the, the tribute of working with this band, The Rifters, who encompass the Easy Riders sound. Um, since this is not a sound that you normally encompass, but it is a sound that your dad specialized in, how did it change your connection with or your appreciation for your dad? I've, I'm such a fan of my dad, and I have so much appreciation for him after working through a lot of anger, too. Hmm. <laughs> um, but it, it did hook me back into it, and, and I think the Rifters were a key part of that because they have these three-part harmonies, and they do these songs that are so so 
sweet and so about community and love and beauty of the of the natural world around them, the mountains and everything. And so I I think it was there was something about hanging out with the Rifters, hearing them play their music that just put me into such a nostalgic place for my dad. And that that was when I realized I got to try this record. I've got to try recording with them and and just hook these parts of myself. It was, it was like a lost part of myself. And I don't really know how it's all going to come, you know, how I'm going to integrate that now with, you know, with the 2020 person. I mean, you couldn't have two records that were more far apart <laughs> from each other than those two records. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, and I'm going to now I'm building a studio. I'm going to start writing again. And, and uh, it'll be interesting to see um, how that's all going to play out. But um, for now, I'm just kind of, I just want to enjoy how it feels to pull, uh, invite this this part of my history uh, into the present. Tell me about your studio. Oh, it's so pretty. Um, it's an old, old garage that has, no, it's like, you know, somebody just threw a bunch of adobes up and put a roof on this thing <laughs> and it was been falling apart. This house is, was built in the, um, in the uh, early 1900s, so... The garage was never taken care of, and um, it was just a mess. But um, I kept going in there and thinking, "God, it sounds really good in this place." So, and it <laughs> are clapping. Yeah, oh. exactly. Because the clapping that's our big thing. It's like, what does that even mean? But um, we uh, so we we started doing. Um, I, we just left it as a garage and left the door, the garage door open, and then we started setting up there for my workshops and recording in there. And the recordings always sounded really good. So. Then we, I just thought, let's do it. So we, I brought in mud plasters, and we really actually mud plastered and did it in old style. I, I kind of kept a lot of what it was in there. Only it's you know it's it's got windows and doors now, and, and uh, it's it's a really nice space. It's just a you know it's nothing fancy, but it has a bathroom. <laughs> oh yeah, we put a bathroom in there and uh, and a little entry area. So it's going to be a nice space. I'm I'm. I can't wait to start. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a live stream pretty soon now. Oh, that's great! Congratulations. Thank you. Um, before we go, will you do the lightning round? The lightning round? What's that? It's when I ask you a bunch of fun oh, oh, questions like... about yourself, and you answer them very fast. Okay. All right. Let's try. Okay. Ready? Here we go. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Ian and Sylvia, or Ian and Sylvia, um, Four Strong Winds, I'm going to say something mm. like that, yeah. What is your karaoke song? <laughs> I don't have one, I really don't. I don't, like, if someone asked me to just sing off the top of my head, I, I don't even have a song. Probably something of my dad's, probably, you know, Bare Necessities or something. Right, that's the correct answer. <laughs> uh, dogs or cats or something else? Oh, dogs. Agreed. Uh, what is your coffee order? Haven't had a cup of coffee in 40 years. I can't. I am so, can you tell? I'm so jacked up already. <laughs> I would sleep, I would not sleep for two days if I had a cup of coffee. Oh my God. I know. Who is your first celebrity crush? Oh, Roy Rogers. Mmm. I love his burgers. <laughs> no. He was so <laughs> sexy. Did you ever hear him yodel? Oh my God. He was. I'm going to look it up after. You sure got a Go see Roy Rogers and look at the dude. He's so gorgeous. He's he's just he almost looks. I don't know. Anyway, he's very very handsome, very very fit, and can sing. You have to hear him yodel. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna do it. And a great horseman too. Oh my god. Mm. 
Important. Okay, aside from John Gorka, who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Oh, oh gosh, Chris Christopherson. Oh my God, what a ch champ of a guy. We met years ago at, on a, a, we did a, some event uh, together up in Montana and we ended up, we just fell in love with each other and, and, and he invited me to go on, on a rafting adventure with him and we had so much fun. And um, over the years, um, he was so supportive and I opened some of his shows. And um, it, for, in terms of celebrity, the guy is so down to earth, such a doll. Oh my God, such a talent too. That's great. Eliza, I know the answer to this question, but please tell our listeners the first album you bought. <laughs> first album I bought was my aunt had a music store. She said, pick up, just pick any album you want. And they had, they had those days they had little listening booths and stuff. So, um, so I picked out, I went through all the supply of records she had and she had one Phil Oaks, I Ain't Marching Anymore. And that was my first, my first record. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know the story. That's awesome. Yeah. Great songs on that. God, he was, he was, mm. a, really had good politics. <laughs> what was your first concert? We were in Los Angeles and we went down, I think it was, <laughs> believe it or not, Strange World of Arthur Brown. I think we went down to the Whiskey or something, or it, no, it was a little theater down in um, Hollywood on, on the, the main drag on Sunset Boulevard. Pretty sure it was uh, Strange World of Arthur Brown. It was one mm. of those early '60s bands, and um, I, I, you know, I saw the Doors around that time. And it, but, but I, you know, I was a teenager. And I yeah. wasn't. It, I wasn't as as young as I as I like to think I was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, flying or invisibility? Oh, flying. Hmm. Yes, you're a dreamer. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had a lucid dream? I mean, where you wake up in the dream and you're and you're in the dream, but yes, and you can fly. Have you tried to fly? Mm -hmm. I have, and it's an incredible feeling. I mean, I've how flown, do you? What yeah. is your flying process in the dream? Uh, I I say to myself, I'm in a dream, but I'm going to try flying, and I'm going to go. I'm going to go up over that mountain, or I'm going to fly up over the house and and I can get up in the air but the biggest but it's hard to hold it I uh, often either come up out of it or I go back into sleep it's really hard mm. to say I I, I've, I because I what I really want to do is actually see if I can go see, visit somebody and I've never been able to do that oh wow sounds like you're just like levitate I love it yeah I just I just go I, I can fly I mean I know I can because I know I'm in a dream I can do anything I want I've heard people say that when they're flying, they're like swimming, uh, making swimming motions. And when uh, I do it in my dreams, I run like an airplane, like I take off and then run and jump. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's very I, can't, I can't remember. It's been so long since I've had a lucid dream. Gosh, it's been a mm. long time. Okay, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? There's a valley in Wyoming where Jakey's Fork uh, River comes down from the uh, glacier melt way up at the other end of the valley that ha that is the most magical place that I know of. Mm -hmm. and I spent a lot of time there in my childhood. It has all, as you walk back up there, and it's not developed because it's the back of a ranch, you can walk back up there. There are caves filled with crystals and, and there are 
um, old, um, the sheep eater um, tribe, which was a, a pygmy tribe that lived up in the high mountains of the Wind River Range, that, uh, that was one of the last tribes to integrate when the settlers, when the white people came. And so they stayed high up on the mountains and they were undiscovered for a long time. But you can find sheep herder blinds up there, still some of their rustic um, stacked stone um you know, the places where they um, would, they were sheep eaters. <laughs> they, they were the sheep eater tribe. But anyway, you can go further up, and as further as you go up in this canyon, the canyon was thrown up in one of the great upheavals. So as you go up the canyon, you're actually going down into the center of the earth. So it goes through all the different stratas of earth and time what? until it gets Come down to. Yes, and when you're at the back of the canyon, it's all lava. It's like. It's like, it's, it's all just rock lava. So you've just gone down, you know, you go back miles and miles and miles and it's as if you were going down into the earth. And at different stages, there are like um, different um, fossils in different, um, embedded in different, I mean, it's like, it's such a beautiful, beautiful place. And the water that comes out of the very top is crystal clear. I mean, it's like, you can, wow. one of the few places you can drink out of springs coming out of the mountains, you, you, you know, there's, you can drink there. And what yeah. is this place called again? Well, that is the um, Jakey's Fork Canyon uh, outside of Du Bois, Wyoming. Okay, great. A lot of things for me to look into today, Eliza. This has been really <laughs> wonderful to have you on. Congratulations you on fun. the new album. Thank you Thanks. so much. Gosh, I'm sorry you don't live next door to me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> This episode of Basic Folk, produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of Townspeople records our music. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for checking out the pod today. If you like this and know somebody who would also enjoy it, please forward to a friend. And make sure that you follow us on social media, Basic Folk Pod, or sign up for our newsletter at our website, basicfolk.com. That's where you can also listen to any of the episodes of Basic Folk previously released, or you can listen wherever you got this podcast. Thanks for stopping by. Bye. Bye.